We're extremely product-focused, so Mark. We don't really see ourselves as a sales organization. We see ourselves as a true SaaS business purely focused on the recruitment and staffing sector. We don't care about any other type of customers apart from recruiters. That's all we'll ever do. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm delighted to be joined by Eloise Sutton Kirkby. Eloise is the co-founder and director of growth at Vincere, a market-leading all-in-one ATS CRM, which is run by ex-recruiters. Vincere means to win or conquer in Latin, and they weaponize recruiters through tech and specialize in helping mid-sized recruiters to beat the big boys. Eloise started her recruiting career way back when with Michael Page in Tokyo. Eloise, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. Delighted to be here. All right. Oh, I should have mentioned you actually are also a podcast host. So you've got a, a show called The Contract Recruiter, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. So check that out. And by the way, we'll include a link to, uh, in the show notes as well. So it's cool interviewing a, a, another podcaster. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, this I have to do this really well because you're a pro, right? No, not at all. Please, you can hardly compare my little baby podcast to what you've done, um, Mark. Um, I mean, the idea of the contract recruiter is um, is quite different to what you're doing. So mine is kind of almost selfishly quite educational um, uh, because it's all about what does contract recruitment mean in different parts of the world. So the idea is we take our listeners on kind of a global tour um, to help understand what contract recruitment looks like in Australia, um, Japan, um, and the next installment is for the US. Awesome. Well, I'm sure we'll come on to this. You are, because you have a very international business Mm -hmm. and you're headquartered in Vietnam, which is interesting. And we'll we'll talk about how and why that all came about. I noticed I was rereading your LinkedIn profile before we jumped on here. And I I just noticed you graduated from University of Glasgow. I didn't realize you had a Scottish connection. Well, yeah. So I'm originally from Leeds. Um, I went to Glasgow Uni for five years. Uh, did an okay. MA in French and English literature, which I've literally never used in the remainder of my career. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, and uh, yeah, I love Glasgow. Great city, great people, nice and gritty. A lot of, lot of resilience in Glasgow, I'd say, is a characteristic. Yeah, um, you and then could say that. <laughs> straight out of uni, fell into recruitment in, um, in Leeds, actually, which is where I started my recruitment journey with Michael Page many moons ago. Ah, fantastic. And then how did you, so I lived just outside Edinburgh. I lived in Edinburgh for years and years. That's the posh uh, bit of Scotland, was, Mark. That's a nice yeah, bit. Yeah, I know. It is, it is beautiful and very multicultural, international feel to it. So, okay. So you started your recruiting career in Leeds. Mm-hmm. How did you end up in Tokyo? So uh, I started with recruitment was all right. I was pretty, you know, I was pretty inconsistent, I'd say, but you know, I was pretty <laughs> clueless, 25, first, first real job, to be honest. Had some great yep. bosses back then who I'm still in contact with, uh, Patrick Smith, a um, little shout out for him. Um, uh, I realized quite quickly though, within my first sort of year really in recruitment, that I, did, I enjoyed the job, but I didn't necessarily want to stay in the UK in recruitment. I really had itchy feet and wanted to travel. Um, so I approached my boss and said, you know, I want to stay with the business. Could you help me move? And incredibly, they said, yeah, okay, hit your target and we'll, we'll help you with that. Where do you want to go? So I said, well, New York? I went, no, Eloise, you're good, but you're not quite that good. You're not going to New York. Um, but they said, well, there's, there's space in the Tokyo office. Um, so it was really random. Um, I ended up going out to Tokyo. Um, and I'm really grateful to Michael Page for allowing me to do it. And I had another great boss there, David Leithhead, who really, really helped me bring me on. So, yeah, that's Fantastic. how I ended up in Asia. And I've never gone back, Mark, for my sins. I I have a couple of clients in uh, in. Tokyo, actually. And mm-hmm. so shout out to Ala Ismailova, who is um, Russian originally, but she is fluent in Japanese and she's uh, she's based over there. What's interesting about Tokyo is like they're um, one of the few markets where it's still 30 percent plus fees is the is the norm. And they mm. they seem to be able to maintain that. It's also the second or third largest recruitment market after the US. 
It's the second. Um, and I know that second, because I yeah. looked into it in quite a lot of detail for my podcast, The Contract Recruiter. So yeah, it's the second largest market, very much a staffing market. So 90% of that is Hacken or Temp, as we'd call it. It is a okay. beautiful market especially after you know cutting your teeth in the UK where you know recruitment in the UK this is back in like 2005 it's a graft you know you're coming into a cold desk and even with a logo behind you like Michael Page it's still bloody hard work um you know getting jobs you're building your client base out when I landed in Tokyo, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this is the land of milk and honey I can just call up <laughs> ask for a meeting and you'll see me uh, You'll, you know, I'll ask for jobs and you'll give me them. The challenge in Tokyo, and I think this is still the same today, um, it was very, very candidate um, dry. Um, so finding good bilingual candidates was really, really a challenge. Um, and right. I, and yes. I was working in a, a pretty uninspiring, for me anyway, um, area of internal audit, um, which was certainly not, you know, my passion. And it's certainly not my area of expertise. But still, you know, the fees were like 40% in those days, which is... Wow. Yeah, pretty unique, I'd say. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. That's so cool. Yeah. So tell me the story then of how and why you and Bernie started a software company. So um, Bernie is um, co-founder and CEO of Vincere. Um, he's an Aussie. Um, he had his own business in recruitment for about 16 years. So, you know, as I was a consultant working at Michael Page, you know, he had his own business. He started it in the UK, in Tunbridge Wells, grew it pretty large, saw an opportunity out in Tokyo and, and f took the business out to Tokyo. And I think he had about 300 and odd people um, across the two uh, countries. Um, it was really an IT contract business that he had. Um, he sold it to Hayes. So Hayes Japan was Bernie's business. Um, so he made um, you know a nice tidy sum out of that. Um, retired, inverted commas, um, you know, whilst in his thirties, um, but realised pretty quickly that you know what are you going to do? Um, he's um, a workaholic, I'd say, in the best possible sense. You know, extremely passionate about recruitment, but didn't really have the appetite to start another recruitment business. But we both wanted to stay within the sphere of this industry, which we both love. Um, so, uh, you know, he had implemented three systems during his 16 years as a business owner. Um, he'd built out these tech stacks that ultimately became debt stacks. Um, and we like to say Frankenstacks. Um, so really, Fincheri was born because, you know, we both lived as recruiters and realized that um, when it came to recruitment tech, there had to kind of be a better way, something truly cloud-based, which could give recruitment firms as much as possible under the one roof. Um, so that's why we started the business, which was 2012. Um, okay, fantastic. Yeah. And you guys have taken off like a rocket. We'll talk about your sort of entrepreneurial business and scaling the, the business in, in a minute. First, could you say more about the Frankenstack uh, thing that you mentioned? Yeah. So with the Frankenstack, I shouldn't laugh really because it's not funny. Um, so the, the Frankenstack is what happens when uh, you know, recruitment firms build out this tech stack. Um, they start by implementing, you know, CRM, ATS. And then when they, you know, branch out to temp or contract, they plug in an online timesheet. They have candidate client portals, which are provided by a third party or another provider. Um, they have analytics, which is often another third-party platform or stuck on Excel or, um, you know, given, given to them by an external provider. What they end up building is hodgepodging together this kind of mismatched mess of different tech systems. Um, it's a really easy thing to do because what you think you're doing is, you know, you're buying different platforms from different vendors, which might all be best in breed. However, ultimately, it's a bit of a trap. Because what you end up with as a recruitment business owner is multiple vendors, um, multiple invoices at the end of each month, systems that don't really integrate. Um, maybe they integrate um, in a shallow, kind of meaningless way, whereas you know there might be a one-way data push from the CRM to the timesheet system, for example. But if you have lots of different vendors giving you your tech, nothing is going to work in a seamless two-way sync. And that is really important, in our opinion, Mark, because, you know, you hear 
recruiters talk all day long about the power of automation. You know, the future is automation. That's where we are, we're all heading that promised land. If you have a Frankenstack, that pipe dream of automation will never happen. Um, and so, you know, when we looked at the landscape, um, this is over a decade ago now, and what we saw is, you know, a lot of our competitors, you know, they sell you a CRM system, which is really the most, it should be the most important system used across a business. It should be the system of record where everything is happening. Your recruiter should live in the CRM ideally. So what they'll do is, you know, they'll sell you the CRM and then often they'll outsource what we would consider to be core features to a marketplace, to a third party. Um, and we just think that's kind of madness. We think that mm. as your provider, we should be able to give you as much as you know, you need to grow the business, stuff that's really core. So certainly analytics should be given to you by your CRM provider and everything should really be working in that native two-way sync. Um, so that's why we've built what we've built. It's not been the easy route, <laughs> believe me. It'd be a lot easier to build integrations with other systems. Um, but we think it's the right thing to do for our customers because we can really give them that true automation piece. That's what we've been working to over the past decade. It's interesting because automation is one of my favorite themes. Mm. And it's something which uh, I think if you if you can actually do it, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, automating the right parts. What So could you give an example of a workflow or a part of the business that could be successfully automated that most recruiters are not really taking advantage of? I, mean, I think um, for sort of mid-sized recruitment firms, which is really our kind of target market, I guess, you know, anywhere with say, say 10 to, we go up to max a thousand consultants. That's where we, we do very well. Um, a area of automation that's very weak usually is between the front, middle, back office. Um, so, you know, around your pay and bill, systems, collecting of time um, from your from your candidates. Often what we see is that, um, you know, a placement's made in the CRM, um, pushed out to the pay and bill software, and then never seen in the CRM again. So the consultants don't know, you know, if timesheets have been submitted, you know, and if they're paid on that, on those timesheets coming in, that's kind of important. Um, and it's just one example of where data just gets really siloed between different teams mm. within a sort of mid-size organization. Um, so we yeah. really focus quite obsessively on that kind of middle back office automation um, mm -hmm. because we see a big opportunity there. And it's almost like, mm -hmm. well, you know, that is an area of pain for a lot of mid-size recruitment firms, automating the middle back office. That's why you see a lot, a lot okay. of when I speak to recruitment bosses, which is what I do all day long um, from all over the world, I often sense that a lot of the time they're quite scared of their back office team. Don't really know <laughs> all of the processes because it's all very manual still. And what we want to do yeah. is you know, help those guys truly automate the middle and back office. So it shouldn't matter if your back office you know, team get up and leave. You know, you, your your mm. business could still run because it's, um, it's truly automated and systemized. That's just one example. Awesome. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, maybe we'll get into a few more uh, as, we, as we go along. So... Um, I understand this idea of the Frankenstack now. Talk to me about your journey as an entrepreneurial sort of tech startup and how that, you know, what have been the key milestones along, along the way? So when we started the business um, back in 2012, we actually started life, not as a system purely focused on recruiters. We, we actually started building three products, Mark which even now sounds absolutely nuts. And it was, it was stupid. Um, we started by building a corporate ATS, um, which we built and we focused most of our efforts on that and we're relatively successful with it. Um, so this ATS, um, we sold it to corporate clients, enterprise clients, um, quite a few government um, offices in Singapore used us, big brands across Asia, Fitness First, um, KFC used us, banks, etc. Um, uh, and we also had another platform, which is an employee, like HR, big data platform, which was probably a bit ahead of its time. And then we start, um, we also had our staffing um, CRM, which became Vincere. So we started with almost three products that we started developing in tandem. Um, we were quite well funded. Um, 
uh, and you know, relatively successful with really the ATS. What we found, though, was that uh, we had to kind of pick a lane. Um, so mm, in, yeah. <laughs> in 2015, um, we kind of came to a cash crunch, really, and our investors said, mm-hmm. look, stop playing with technology, pick a system, and let's just go all in on that. Um, so we looked at, you know, the corporate um, HR audience, and then we looked at the recruitment staffing audience, which is kind of you know, who we are. Um, and we decided to pick the recruitment um, industry over corporate HR for various reasons. <laughs> Such as? Main one being, you know, we understand recruitment. We understand right. the staffing. Well, I've sold to, you know, both the corporate side and, you know, recruiters. Give me recruiters any day of the week because, you know, we're commercial people in recruitment. And so if you, you know, if you give me half an hour to show you Vincere and I show you a product that's going to save you time, make you more productive, make you more money, ultimately, there's no sell. Of course you'll take it. You'd be stupid not to, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, so we decided to focus on Vincere. Um, what we did realize, Mark, is that the system we'd spent the first five years building was pretty average. So we scrapped it, burned it to the ground and rebuilt it from the ground up and relaunched. Wow. Yeah, that was a that was a tough conversation. <laughs> but anyway, um, we you know we decided that we you know we're just going to focus on Vincere, make it amazing, and we completely rebuilt it and relaunched it in 2016. So when we talk about growth, really, it's all come from a standing start in 2016, which is when we started to really okay. focus on on Vincere or Vinny, as we call it. Yeah. All right. Awesome. You know, a lot of software companies go through this kind of early trying to find their market and their niche and what they are going to be great at. And then, so you properly started then in 2016. And so in the last five years, uh, how much have you grown? Can you give us like the current size and shape of the business? Um, yeah. So we, we have just over 1,500 customers globally, um, and they are very global, so over 50 com- uh, countries at last count. A customer for us is a recruitment business. Um, they could have anywhere between one up to 1,000 licenses. Um, uh, we have 100 people working here at Vincere. Um, we've got five offices, so Singapore, Sydney, Saigon, uh, London, and Ibiza. Um, and you know we're growing, we're, we're you know we're growing at a nice rate. Um, it's it's been quite a journey. We're extremely product focused, so Mark. Um, you know we aren't afraid to admit that. So or we don't really see ourselves as a sales organisation. We see ourselves as a true SaaS um, business, purely focused on the recruitment and staffing sector. We don't care about any other type of customers apart from recruiters. That's all we'll ever do. Fantastic. Mm. Um, so why Saigon? What, how did you end up there? And what in your experience, because I have a number of clients who are um, living in one place and then their clients are in a different country. So they're sort of recruiting internationally and maybe mm. their candidates are in, a, in, in another country still. Um, what do you see as being the pros and cons of that scenario and how's that shifted during the pandemic? Um, so great question. So we, we actually HQ'd out of Singapore and that's where it's still, okay. you know, our HQ <clears throat> is. Um, however, back in 2015, when we had that cash crunch and we had to make, you know, the decision on what direction do we take this business in? Who do we really focus on? Um, we realized that um, if we were going to outpace our competitors and really build the platform you know, the full breadth of this all-in-one platform, we had to be somewhere where we could really scale a tech business. Um, Singapore was really terrible for us in that respect. I know a lot of people say it's a great place to have a tech firm. That certainly wasn't our experience. We found it to be a Mm. bit of a a honey trap, to be honest. Um, Mm. So we made the decision to move to here to Saigon. Believe me, I had two very young children at the time I, you know, I wasn't exactly, you know, overjoyed at the thought of living in Vietnam. I really thought it was, you know, a third world country. I wasn't really on the wasn't really on the Vietnam train at the time, but I did because it was the right decision for the business. And you know, five years in, it's probably the best decision we made. 
for the business full stop. Um, so wow. Yeah, I mean, Vietnam's. I don't know if your listeners probably probably think what I thought about five years ago. I think Vietnam. Ooh, not sure about that. But I would say it's probably the best place in the world to to run a, a tech business from. Um, you know, it's, wow. Why why do you say that? Well, it's got you know growing population. I think it's the highest, um, you know, the fastest growing economy in Southeast Asia last year, even through COVID. Um, highest literary, literacy rates in the world. Young population, average age is about 30. Um, you know, the, and the skills of tech are, you know, extremely high. Um, you know, we started with a team of about 20 people here. Um, and, you know, this is the fastest growing team that we've had. We had headcount growth of about 30% on tech team through COVID. Um, it allows us to be able to keep our development costs relatively low. So we can just focus on the product, keep, you know, keep the development going on the product. Because we see that as the battleground. Um, you know, if you have an amazing product, people will come to you and they'll never leave. Um, so that's kind of been our strategy. You know, not spend too much on the sales teams and marketing strategy. Just build a product and the rest will kind of organically come. And anyway, that's been our route and it's worked quite nicely. Um, have, you been, have you been to Saigon? Have you ever been out No, here? I've... I've never been to Asia. So, um, so rewind a second. So 2015, 2016, you, you mentioned a cash crunch. How bad was that? Like what, what was the scenario? Um, I mean, yeah, it was pretty intense. Um, uh, you know, we had to, you know, in tech, you can play around with tech, but ultimately you got to make money. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we just decided let's just stop with the, expensive sales and marketing strategies. And we learned the hard way that you, your product has to be amazing. Um, let's take it back to basics. Let's focus on what we know. Let's listen to the customer and let's build this thing out and, um, and really grow it the right way. Um, and the, yeah, so that, that's the decision we made. Yeah. And um, so then you relocating with your young kids to Saigon, um, that must've been quite a sort of, you know, sh culture shock and everything else. Like how, what was it like in the early days, just acclimatizing? I mean, it sounds like you've been living the expat lifestyle for a while. So that part was, you were already, you were already comfortable with, but new country with young kids, you don't have the support, like the family support, even just knowing your way around and how everything works can mm. be challenging. I, I would imagine. What was it like in the early days getting set up? Um, yeah, pretty, pretty intense, but you know, the wonderful thing about having a business that you love um, and that's challenging you is you don't probably think about or dwell on stuff like that too much. You know, you just okay. crack on and you make sure that you're, you know, you're going to make it worthwhile. And my attitude was always like, okay, if we're moving to Vietnam. I care about social life. I want to focus on this thing. Let's get it successful as quickly as possible. And let's really hunker down and, you know, make, make sacrifices and, you know, if you're not going to be with your family, you know, if my family's back in England or you know, whatever, I want to make sure that, that at least I'm using the time wisely and, and we're seeing progress and we're pushing this uh, as far as we can take it. So, awesome. yeah, do you know what? Okay. I can't even remember what it was like. It's five years ago. <laughs> I can't remember. So, well, it's all right. They've got so they've, in, they've in a way, at the time, you know, they've got grab here. It's, it's all good. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. 
If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Okay, so apart from that cash crunch early on, which prompted you to concentrate on one core niche, which was going to be recruiting and staffing, and to relocate the development team to Saigon, what other sort of business challenges have you had to overcome along the way? Um, oh my gosh. I mean, the move to Vietnam was a pretty intense one, to be honest. Um, a big challenge that we had until probably the past couple of years was probably challenging people's perceptions around the fact that we were based or I was based in Vietnam. So for the first like two and a half years of the, you know, of the business, I was really the only salesperson. Um, so most of the sales calls would be me um, pitching from from Ho Chi Minh, right? Um, now, a lot of customers in our core areas, which would be, you know, ANZ, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK, um, they didn't used to like, there would be resistance around the fact that I wasn't, you know, based around the corner and could come and do a face-to-face demo. They didn't like that mm. because... And I can't blame them, you know, it's because the norm at the time was that if you were buying a CRM, someone would, a few people would pitch up in a suit and, you know, give you a half day demo, Um, which obviously because of our model, I just couldn't do that. So I had to figure out which prospects were a good match for me, which were progressive enough to kind of understand Mm -hmm. that it didn't really matter. At the end of the day, once you've bought the software, the software stays with you, not the salesperson. Um, uh, so that was really challenging. Um, but it's funny because that changed a lot since COVID. Yeah, um, no kidding. Yeah. So now, I think until probably COVID hit, I was almost a little bit reticent to even be really loud and proud about the fact that, you know, we were an Asia based business um, uh, because, you know, I felt it hurt us. Um, mm-hmm. with prospects. Um, I've got to say now, when I speak to people, it doesn't really matter where they are. And they ask me, where are you? And I say, Ho Chi Minh. It's actually really interesting for them. And mm. the, like, the warmth of the call it probably heats up rather than cools off. And that's crazy. Awesome. That's a change yeah, in what, a year I mean, or so. Totally. I mean, I think it's twofold. A, people are have had to work that way and they've realized, oh, actually it's fine. Right. Mm. Um, so everybody's comfort level with that has, has increased. But I also really think that when you are being authentic and real with people, then that itself is much, is attractive. It's an attractive Mm. quality rather than, and I, I have, most of my clients are small, Mm. And they try and appear a lot of, I, I see this a lot, recruiting companies trying to appear bigger than they are. And like, they'll have these websites, which are very like pictures of like the Gherkin in London or like buildings <laughs> and stuff. And I'm like, where are you on this website? I don't see you anywhere. And they're like, oh yeah, but I don't want people to know it's just me and, or a small team. Uh, and I'm like, but do you know what? I think people ultimately are buying into you like yeah. when you actually talk to clients, they're not buying the co- corporate brand. They're buying you and your capabilities and, and your experience. So do you not think it's better to be, be real and your website? Totally. And so I think if you like, okay, we're in Ho Chi Minh. And that's, I think that's kind of cool actually, because it's like, oh, well, why did you do that? And what, I mean, people can instantly see how that could be a, a a good business strategy, at least if they're smart and they're thinking about, yeah. you know, things more progressively, as you say. Yeah, it's, it's really true because you straight away, that question comes up. They're like, all oh, right, really, that's interesting. And I'm like, yeah, well, why are you based there? And it's like, well, you know, yeah. you know we can keep our cost base really low and give you tech, you know, at such a pace um, you know, there's never a dull moment as a Finney customer. There's always new stuff that's, you know, weapons that we're delivering. As soon as they get their head around that, they're like, oh, actually, that's great. I don't need to see you for a coffee. That's yeah, so 2019, you- darling. Right, exactly. <laughs> see you for a Zoom. You've turned it, into, turned it into a selling point instead of a disadvantage. I think that's, yeah, that's I totally agree with what you say, though. I think that authenticity um, is so important with well, just people in general, but especially so with recruiters. Because I just think our heightened sense of sniffing out BS is, right. you know, very acute. 
And if you're mm-hmm. like one of our values here since day one actually is own it. I think if you do own it, own who you are, own your model, own your business. And yeah, some people might not like it and that's okay too. I think it's the way to go for sure. We've all seen enough gherkins on websites. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Be yourself and be like whatever, like claim your territory and be yourself and people, the right prospects will be attracted to that. And rather than, you know, having this trying to pretend you're something you're not. Well, I actually, this podcast has been awesome from that point of view for, for me and my kind of um, imposter syndrome, because, you know, when people are spending hours and hours and hours with me and you can't pretend to be someone you're not for that long, it would be exhausting (laughs) and you just, you wouldn't be able to sustain it. Right. So I just have to just kind of be myself and, you know, some people are probably going to listen and go, look, that guy's not for me. But then other people, the, hopefully the right people are going to like my style and, and the way I come across. And, and so, you know, other, I can't think of any other way to really to do this other than just be yourself. Yeah, it must be great for business for you though, Mark, because you know, I've listened to your podcast and when we first spoke, I felt like I was speaking to an old friend because I kind of spent three hours with you already. Oh, awesome. Oh, that's <laughs> kind of you to say. I, I love that. Well, let's let's talk about inbound marketing because it's something we, we've chatted about before and something we're both passionate about. I understand that because you have a really interesting way that you have set up your KPIs in the business and, and you do a lot of um, focus on generating inbound leads on LinkedIn and stuff. Can you talk about your sort of own marketing strategy for, for Vincere? Mm. Because I think the way that you do things could also work really well for recruiting businesses. So for the first few years of the business, we didn't really have a marketing strategy, to be honest. The marketing strategy was not spend a penny on marketing and spend it all on the product um, because we are very product focused. Um, uh, What we have really woken up to is the fact that we don't need to spend a lot on marketing. We don't want to. We don't want to have a massive sprawling sales team. That's not us. Um, What we do want to do, though, is to have our customers who don't see us as a vendor, who see us as a partner. Um, And as part of that partnership, they will be our marketers. So our extended marketing team is our community of customers. And recruiters are amazing like this. You know, if I give a deal, um, and, you know, if we give a discount or we give something attractive to a new customer, we say, okay, um, you give me something in return. Yeah. Okay. You, go out, you be a Vinnie advocate and you give us referrals and you know, that's how it works. So that's worked really well for us. Um, the other thing that's worked really nicely, and I feel like I'm quite late to the party here, is um, LinkedIn. So latter half of last year, um, I wanted to become more visible on LinkedIn um, because I was a bit bit lazy with it, to be honest. wasn't really doing much with it. Um, So I started to post more regularly and make more of a concerted effort to put out content and just communicate what we were doing. Not as a way to get leads per se, just as a way to kind of connect with with customers and just kind of build a network really. Um, So I started doing that the latter half of last year um, and I realized, you know, November, December, that that effect on our business in terms of engagement with customers, new business, partners, even when you know we've been trying to hire people, just employer branding, had been phenomenal. So wow. in January, I made the decision to scrap all KPIs for the sales and customer success team um, and just focus on one thing, which was just be more visible on LinkedIn be more consistent on posting on LinkedIn. Um, So that's something that we've tried this year and the effects have been really, really interesting. Wow. That is very um, progressive uh, to use that word again. What, so what kind of stuff are the team, well, what are you doing? What are the team doing and what impact has that had? So I um, I started working with an amazing guy called David Wollstonehome, um, who's based in Australia. He's a Brit based in Australia who started giving me coaching on how to kind of, you know, 
how to post, what to post, that kind of thing. So that was great for me. Um, and then for our team, um, we uh, work with an awesome guy called Sean Anderson, who has um, the Hoxo oh, yeah. Academy. Yeah. Yeah. So we, our businesses have got quite a lot of affinities, actually. We have a lot of customers in common and, um, you know, we, we, Sean runs something called an academy um, and all of our team went through this academy. It's an eight week program run by Sean, group sessions and just coaching. It's, it's actually designed for recruiters, um, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, it's, it's sales essentially. Um, and I'd really recommend it to anybody listening. Check him out. He does some awesome content. Um, if you're trying to be more engaged with LinkedIn, highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, so I know, Sh- I don't know Sean personally, but I know of him. And so can you give me an example of like what kinds of things you've been putting out and how you feel that has had an impact on, on Vincere? Um, a mix of some personal stuff, which I won't lie, was quite challenging at first because I don't even use Facebook. Um, and I'm a lurker on Instagram, so I'm not exactly, you know, queen of social or anything like that. Um, but I've been putting out a little bit more um, personal stuff um, yeah. uh, with a mix of, I think the, the trick is not to make it all about you, 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 um, and right. business, business, business. You know, people want to develop a bit of a relationship with you, I suppose, and mm-hmm. sort of feel like they want to get to know you a little bit. Um, so mm-hmm. trying to get the blend of, and I also think it's really hard not to sound too show-offy on LinkedIn. You want to talk about, you know, sound boastful because, you don't, want to sound like, you don't want to sound like a dick. Um, so, you know, I've been trying to keep the mix and the balance, you know, a bit personal, a bit business, a bit how wonderful Vincere is, a bit how terrible we are sometimes as well. It's just keeping a balance, I guess. You're very good on LinkedIn, though. I'm not going to t- tell you anything, Mark. You are amazing oh, with your you LinkedIn content. thank you for saying that. I'm, uh, I've made a concerted effort this year to be very consistent. I'm trying to mm. post six days a week. I've not quite managed, but like, that's a lot, at, at least five days a week. Um, and with our inner circle coaching group, we've got everybody like, we're really pushing this and challenging people because the, the idea is we want people to develop from being that burnt out, um, sort of recruiter trapped in that vendor, you know, model mm. where they're, you know, having to work in a transactional way with clients and we want them to evolve to being a respected leader in their fields. Yeah. And so that they generate inbound leads, number one, but also number two, when they're engaging with clients, they are able to command a premium fee. They're able to win a retainer and get, you know, the exclusivity. They're able to be selective about the clients that they they partner with and you know if you want to achieve that you have to it's not enough just to tell people that you're a market leader you have to demonstrate leadership Mm. and be visible in your marketplace and really um just step into the spotlight a little bit and give value and share knowledge with your ecosystem and try and be helpful to people. Um, but do that as, you know, as consistently as you can and, and as authentically as you can. And then the thing is though, Eloise, it's not like, it's like going to the gym, right? You can't work out three times and then go, why, why can't I see any difference? I think it does take, you know, a sustained effort over time mm. to build momentum. And so sometimes recruiters say to me, you know, Mark, I've been posting for two weeks and I've not, you know, I have not had any inbound leads yet. And I'm like, keep going. You're, you're, in, you're doing the right things. It also ampl- elevates and amplifies everything else you're doing. So it all connects up. So if you're sending out, uh, you know, cold emails or your cold calling or your, you know, uh, connecting with people on LinkedIn or whatever, those in isolation are okay. But if you're doing a whole mix of stuff and they're seeing you on LinkedIn appearing in their newsfeed on a regular basis, then they start coming to know, like, and trust you. And then they're more likely to buy into you and take your call and, you know, agree to an appointment and so on. So I think it kind of like, I don't believe in this outbound versus inbound argument. I think it's really a blended approach that has, 
you know, going to have the best overall impact. I, um, I, to- I totally agree. I do think it's not the answer to the world's problems, but I think it can be such a win, such a win. And it's like a pain barrier. You know, you will have a few months of it not really, you know, giving you much. Um, But then what's really interesting is, you know, having conversations with people who have never liked a single post you've ever done. You know, you don't know if they've even seen you on LinkedIn. They say, oh, great post the other week. And you think, who else is seeing this stuff? Who I don't register. Um, Absolutely. It's exactly like you're, it's, it's so powerful when you have a conversation with someone and they say, oh, I saw like, or you say, how did you hear about me? And they say, oh, I, I've been seeing a lot of your content on LinkedIn and I really like this video that you made or, mm. or whatever. And you weren't even aware that they had seen it because they hadn't commented or anything. Um, Especially powerful. Especially great for, you know, those businesses which are in growth mode right now, recruitment firms who are in growth mode, looking to hire other recruiters who, you know, will also be spending all day on LinkedIn. You know, if you've got a cool business that's going somewhere and you've got your purpose and you're growing, you've got to communicate that to, you know, other recruiters who, you know, you you might be hiring. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. It's really uh, being aware of your three audiences, which are, of course, your clients, your candidates, and recruiters who may join your firm as well, and having a little bit of content aimed at each of those audiences. Um, So talking about um, your own team then, like you mentioned that you're asking them to post consistently. How often do they need to... Uh, share content on LinkedIn? I'm saying three times a week. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, That's ideal. You know, we've got so much going on with product releases and things that they could be messaging, you know, about the business. You know, they probably only really have to be creative. We're probably really one post of their own, truly original. Um, But yeah, I think three times a week is reasonable. Um, And they're starting to see results now. So, you know, probably next quarter that won't be a KPI anymore because you know, they'll want to do it because they're motivated to do it (laughs) because they see the benefits. Awesome. It's really interesting. You mentioned also about the blend of business related stuff and also personal stuff. Um, because what, what I see is that when I post like tips for recruiters, like on winning retainers or, you know, negotiating a bigger fee or whatever, then you get a certain amount of traction with that. And I think it's good because, so this is advice for listeners on like knowing what to post, pick uh, a handful of kind of recurring topics that you want to become known for. Of course, they need to map onto for your target audience, what are the issues that they care most about, right? So I guess that's the first starting point is what are the problems that your clients in your specific niche are uh, or challenges they're up against that you can solve and then, you know, talk consistently about those topics. However, once in a while, maybe even if it's just, you know, 10% of your content should be much more personal and give people a window into like your own story, your own life or your experience, your hobbies, your interests or whatever. And what I've seen is that those posts get way more traction for some reason. And I, it must just be, well, I don't, I don't exactly know why that is, but the stories where you share something more personal seem to get a lot more viral, you know, impact. And do you, are you part of Facebook or Instagram or any of the other, are you a LinkedIn man? I, yeah, exactly. I have all, all of those platforms, but I don't personally spend time on anything apart from LinkedIn. Like we post stuff. I have a private Facebook group for my, uh, my clients, but, um, I just don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. So LinkedIn is where is the only social platform I'm really actively engaged with. And are you a weekend scroller? Yes. Do you know what's funny? I my best ever post I posted on a Saturday. Oh, really? As an experiment. Yeah, because I thought because I only ever posted Monday to Friday, and then I thought I wonder if it's worth posting on Saturday. And turns out it is. I got like a hundred thousand views on this post, and um, that kind of made me realize uh, people are 
addicted to faith, to LinkedIn, sorry, and they're they're checking it out on the weekends as much as on uh, weekdays. But you're probably the same as me. You know, we're looking to connect with recruitment business owners, really, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe you're more on the smaller side, and I'm slightly more interested in like more the mid market side. Yeah. But you know, and I know what I'm like as a business owner. Just because it's Saturday or Sunday, you know, you're still interested. Just want to keep an eye out. So yeah, I'm I'm a weekend scroller as well for my sins. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's uh, it is. T- that's the downside of social media is the uh, <laughs> the addictive quality of it. So Eloise, one thing I wanted to ask you. Speaking of of um, like personal versus business, could you talk to me about dealing with adversity? Because one of the themes of the show is resilience and um, you know, having come through tough experiences and that being something that you use rather than that breaks you, what would you say has been like that key experience for you? For me, it would definitely be when my first uh, child Eve was born. Uh, so she was born in April, 2013 um, in Singapore. Um, it was not long after we'd founded the business um, uh, and we just literally a few weeks before got quite significant financial backing um, from a PE firm. Um, so things were kind of going quite well. Um, Eve, our firstborn, um, landed and it became uh, quickly obvious that she had some quite serious health issues. So uh, she was diagnosed with a very rare genetic skin disorder, which is called recessive dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa. Um, is more commonly known as butterfly syndrome. Um, So Eve has what they call butterfly skin. What it boils down to is that she, um, if she knocks herself, um, if she um, grazes herself, the skin just falls off. Um, So she, yeah, so she has to have twice uh, daily dressing changes. Um, She has to be kind of, you know, uh, protected, I guess. Um, and, you know, there's implications when they get to be teenagers around skin cancers and that kind of thing. The, the mortality rates are about 60% for recessive dystrophic strain of what she has. Um, oh uh, yeah, once they get out of their teens. So that came as a complete shock. Neither um, in my family nor my husband's family have we ever had anything like this. It's just a complete random uh, curveball that life threw at us. Um, and it happened um, at a time when we were really, you know, all in with this business. We invested everything in it. Um, So that reframed everything for me, uh, for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And it made us really have that fire in our belly when it came to making this business um, a success. Um, Because, you know, quite simply, failure was not an option. Um, You know, we're driven to not just provide financial security for our kids, right? (laughs) Because you've got to pay the bills. Um, But, you know, we want to ultimately... The dream would be to be able to, you know, make a significant uh, impact and help find a cure for this this awful disease. Wow, that's an incredible mission, and um, yeah, that's your mama bear instincts must have just gone into overdrive there. You know, wanting to protect our kids is like, I guess that's the biggest thing for every parent, right? So, I mean, I remember when able- it, uh, sorry, yeah. Mark. I, I remember, no, remember when she was born, um, basically she didn't have any skin on her left leg um, and it was quite oh, badly that's... deformed. She was tiny as well. She was like 2.1 yeah. kg, like four, oh, four pounds two. She was a really little baby. Um, uh, and the doctor in Singapore said, oh, you know, we probably have to amputate. And I remember oh saying, no, that's when the malware kicks in. You go, yeah. come on, no, let's rewind. Let's not tell stories or let's not make assumptions here. We get a diagnosis and then we decide what happens. But, you know, let's, let's, not, get, let's not make any silly statements. Let's just, let's just take things step by step. And you know what, Mark? Eve is, has flourished. So wow. she can, and the, doc, the British doctor at the time said this to me, he said, you know, it's okay. She, her, her skin will grow, like we can treat mm-hmm. um, and she'll walk, she will run and she'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And she does all those things, um, albeit, you know, she has challenges with it. Um, but, you know, she's a very well adjusted uh, little girl and she's the happiest little girl you'd ever meet. 
you know. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Mm. And uh, that's awesome that you've linked this to kind of like your your mission and and wanting to contribute uh, in a in a big way to something that is significant personally and and affects you know affects other people. I think that's awesome, Eloise. Wow, that's huge. I can't say thank you for that because I'd feel like a real shyster. It's, I, I think uh, that would be false modesty. I think so many parents, you know, you get thrown stuff with your kids health-wise mm. that I don't think you can ever sort of sit back and think, oh, you know, aren't I wonderful for dealing with it? Nah, you, mm. life throws you stuff like that and you just, yeah. you get on with it, don't you? Because it's your kids ultimately and you just don't have a choice you have to do the right thing for them. So. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and look, I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm, you know, let's keep in, let's keep in touch and, and do this I see again. You on LinkedIn, baby. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to be checking out your content and seeing what you're, what you're posting three times a week, right? You oh said. God. So I'm yeah. going to hold you to that. Um, <laughs> and uh, listen, we'll, post a link to your website in the show notes, but can you say it uh, on air for those who are maybe jogging or doing the dishes right now and can't, you know, can't go and check it out? Yeah, of course. So you can um, find me, Eloise Sunkirkley, um, on LinkedIn, but the business is www.vincere.io. So that's spelled sincere, but with a V instead of an S. Oh, that's a good way of remembering. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you did choose a difficult name to pronounce. That was... Um... Uh, I know. I've, I kind of <laughs> have regretted that so many times. But, you know, get, we like the meaning because yeah. it means to win, to conquer in Latin. So we yeah. wanted something timeless. But also, you know, in recruitment, you know, you don't... Winning is everything, right? You don't get paid for having the second best candidate. You right. know, so, you know, it came back to that idea of you know, we really want to help those small, mid-sized firms. We want to be their competitive edge through tech and beat the big guys. It sounds terribly aggressive, doesn't it? But hey, there you go. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. Eloise, call, us, call us Vinny for short, Mark. <laughs> Vinny. Okay, that's yeah. easy. Fantastic. Eloise, have an awesome day and uh, look forward to t- talking again. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. You take care of yourself. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really want to help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.